Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We're in Isaiah chapter 9. Those of you not familiar with Scripture, Isaiah is near the center of the Bible. You'll find the Psalms. Turn right, you'll find a big book called Isaiah after that. And Isaiah says the following, and, and this is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord to a people of Judah, the southern kingdom at this time in around 700 B.C., who were under duress, under the threat that comes with uh, a superpower on the rise nearby. Isaiah says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading of his inspired word. You may be seated. So Christmas is here, and uh, Christmas time for us in America, uh, and really as American Christians, is normally a happy and enjoyable time. For us, it is a time of family, of days off, of Christmas parties, of football, and this year we even get to enjoy a new Star Wars movie thrown in. And for us, Christmas is generally a matter of ease. Let me, I'd like to make a suggestion that when you look at the Bible and how Christmas happens in the Bible, what we'll find is that both in the time of the Old Testament and the time of the New Testament with, with its fulfillment of the Christmas promises, Christmas was actually an experience of violence, of tension. Here's what I mean. In the Bible, they didn't exactly experience Christmas with parties, eggnog, presents, sitting around the fire with family and friends. They experienced contention. They experienced tension in their midst. That's what Christmas meant for the people of the Bible who actually lived it. And such was the case in Isaiah chapter 9 today in one of the most profound prophecies of Christ's coming given, given 700 years before he ever came where it is borne out 
that people who are longing for a coming Christ face violence in their midst as the people of God. So after months of talking about ethical issues that we all have been covering here at Redeemer, uh, and usually with most of those ethical issues dealing with violence in some very real way, we need to ask, what is God's response to his people being uh, threatened in a violent world to bring it closer to home. What has Christmas got to do with the violence, the tension we experience and see in our world today? Well, Isaiah 9 is going to give us kind of a, uh, an outline of this, of how God responds to tension that we experience as Christians. And it tells us uh, how God meets violence. Uh, and here's what it's going to tell us. It's going to tell us God gives us hope in promise and fulfillment. God gives us hope in promise and fulfillment, in light, in a good future with joy, in real change, in a lasting kingdom, and yes, in a son who is born. So let's talk about these together. First, let's start with the hope of promise and fulfillment of God, even in difficult, uh, violent circumstances, with light. Look at verse 1 and 2. Uh, the, the author says, uh, Isaiah says, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And here's the great, great news. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. What is the prophet Isaiah talking about here? What is the gloom and anguish that he is alluding to? Well, in the prior two chapters, what you may not know is that he talks about how the southern kingdom of Israel around 730 B.C., uh, that is Judah, uh, had been facing a historical crisis that they had never experienced before. The local superpower... Assyria had decided it wanted to expand its power and its wealth throughout the world. And by the way, this is exactly the same area where we hear about Syria in the news, the Syria where the despot um, Assad lives, as well as ISIS is intervening, all kinds of trouble, civil war. That's the very same Syria that shows up here in our text with Isaiah chapter 7 and 9. And what had happened is Assyria had risen and become kind of the superpower of its time. And it was the, uh, such a juggernaut that was kind of going all through the, uh, that part of the Middle East that they, no one could stop them. They wanted more as a nation, more power, more money, than you named it. So Judah had this nation coming down, and Judah's a little tiny nation that's not very powerful at all, had this giant nation with huge armies coming down from the north towards them. As if that wasn't bad enough, to the north of Judah was Israel, their cousins, their brothers in the Jewish faith, who actually decided that they wanted a piece of Judah. They wanted more power and more money. And so guess what they did? They actually formed an alliance, a coalition with Syria to the north to come in and, and take down Judah by destroying Jerusalem. 
This was betrayal to Judah. Uh, this was betrayal where uh, they were going to attack Judah along with the Assyrians. And, you know, the king of Israel, uh, who is ruling from Zebulun and Naphtali, the north, that's what, those, that's what those parts are, parts of the northern king of Israel, they are really struggling with this. And you can imagine why. I mean, it's a little bit like your own family members joining Al-Qaeda who are, attacking, or who are planning to attack you and take all of your goods and maybe even kill you in the process. So Ahaz does what most Middle Eastern kings do at that time in the face of this coming threat. He freaks out. He freaks out. And the rest of the, of the nation of Judah starts freaking out as well. And in the process, they decide that they want to try and right the situation by handling things their own way. And yet God, what he does in the midst of this is he sends Isaiah as a voice. Isaiah basically says, uh, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and trust the Lord, if you will, in the midst of this. Don't overreact despite the threat that is coming. Nonetheless, Judah had a hard time believing this. They had this sense of gloom and anguish coming over them. They were living, if you will, in darkness of a threat of sin from another nation, and dare I say it, even sin from their own midst. So terror is coming over them, and they're afraid. And, and I think this is where we live at times in our lives, be it with personal experiences in our lives, things that scare us, things that bring terror to us, and you know what those are in your heart when you face them. Uh, it even shows up in our nation at times when there's violence that shows up on our back door, such as in Charleston this past summer at Emmanuel Baptist when a, when a young man uh, killed a bunch of our African-American brothers and sisters while they were in a prayer meeting. It shows up in uh, San Bernardino with ISIS seemingly showing up in our own midst in a nation. It shows up even in racial riots. It shows up in school shootings. Violence shows up in all kinds of places that brings a coldness over our hearts, a fear of what might happen. In this moment, God speaks to us and to the people of Judah. And in the process, God speaks by making a promise for the people who were walking in what felt like sure darkness where they couldn't see where it was going. God gave them, as it says in our text today, a great light. A great light. And what's interesting about how he says this, he says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He moves to this past tense, if you will, this perfect tense, if you remember your English. And what's intriguing about that is Isaiah moves from here's the situation to this is where they will live. He has such hope such confidence that this is what's going to happen to God's people that he speaks in the past tense as if it's already happened. And he says this light will come. This light will come and will, will spread out the sense of violence. Light is truth in God's word. Light is holiness and righteousness. Light is what overcomes darkness, not the other way around. Now, we can relate. We don't have an occupying force in our neighborhoods here in our nation, but we do have a sense of the darkness of our world. All you have to do is watch the news or listen to it for five minutes. 
All you have to do is sit, read uh, online what's going on in the world today, and there is lots of bad news, and it's hard to take it in. Our world seems broken, and it doesn't seem to get better, despite our best efforts. Not only that, all you have to do is live in your life, in your job, in your family, in your marriage. Uh, all you have to do is live in your community for a minute to realize that at times you realize you're broken, that you don't work the way you're supposed to work, and despite your best efforts, things can't be fixed. Well, in many ways, we live in a darkness where we can't see clearly as a result of our own brokenness and the brokenness we see in our world. We need a light that shines into our darkness, and John 1 tells us who that light is. John 1 is the Christmas chapter of the Gospel of John, and it tells us that the true light which enlightens everyone has come into the world, Jesus Christ. He was a light that shines in the darkness. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of life, light, and actually in John 8, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. You hear that? Jesus is light for us. Not our best efforts, though those not, are not unimportant. Not even our attempts at seeking God. Christ is our light. Now, why does that matter? Why did that promise and its fulfillment in Christ make a difference? Well, you know what's interesting? Jesus started his ministry in Galilee. In, just like it says in our text in Isaiah 9, and in the land of Nephtali and of Zebulun. That's the kind of area where Nazareth was in Galilee. And what's intriguing about that is Jesus didn't start his ministry with a wowing bang. <laughs> he didn't start in Jerusalem, which would have been kind of the hip place to be in Judea and Galilee. He didn't start it in Rome or Corinth, which were kind of the New York City and the Washington, D.C. of the time, where you get all kinds of press. No, he started in what used to be the northern kingdom of Israel. He started in a place that was forgotten, broken, and people were trying to forget it was broken. The good news for that for you and me is that when that God enters into our world, he comes in places that are often forgotten and broken that we want to forget. He comes to us. He comes to love us. As a result, we don't have to write ourselves like Judah tried to do, like Israel tried to do, and like we try to do. What God does is he walks into places where you least expect him in places of weakness, of brokenness, he comes to bring light. Second promise and fulfillment shows up in Isaiah 9. It is, that comes as a promise of joy at, of all moments of such terror for these people. Look at verse 3. It says, You multiply the nations, increase its joy, they rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Listen to that. Joy, rejoice, joy, glad. It's all this joy, 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 joy down in my heart. 
And you're like thinking, wait a minute now. These people are like in crisis mode. They've got a superpower with their brothers from Israel coming to take them on and wipe them out. And he's talking about joy. What's good here is, is Isaiah being like insensitive or something? We've got to remember that they had been living in this doom and gloom for a, a time. But what he's, he's doing is he's giving a promise of a good future. That a good future awaits these people. And the good future includes things like a harvest, where everything goes right, where things come together in all the plans of life. It's like a military victory, where there's spoil, where there's goodies that come out of the military victory that can be distributed among the people as well. What he's talking about is human flourishing. What he's talking about is a place and a time where things are the way they're supposed to be. Now, we get a taste of that in our time. Whenever the economy is doing well in our world, in America, we enjoy the growth that goes on. Say in Union County, for example, when you see a new shopping center go up or you see the, new th the theater that went up a few years ago, among other things, you have this sense of, ah, things are moving forward, progress, there's growth, good things are happening. Well, that same feeling is what Isaiah was communicating here in our text to a people who were feeling like their world was about to be obliterated by a superpower army. Their very livelihood was threatened, but God was giving them the promise of good. You know, C.S. Lewis says something about uh, the human person that's really intriguing. He says, you never know how bad you are until you try to do good and fail. You never know how broken you are until you try to fix things and it doesn't work. That's how true it is for us in our lives, and I might suggest even in our culture as a whole. So often we try to fix things, and it's not to say our, our intentions aren't right. It's not even to say that our attempts aren't good. But it is to say it's never quite enough with ourselves and with our culture and our society. What we need is someone to come in our world, to be born into our world, who can set things right and straight. And he did come. Jesus Christ, born in the strangest of ways to a teenage couple. He was bo born in what amounted to a, an a animal stable. <laughs> Instead of to riches and glory and fanfare like one of the children of, of the prince and princess of England, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in relative obscurity. As 2 Corinthians 8 says, He became poor that we might be rich. And we're not talking mere material blessings here. We're talking about the thing that we really need in our hearts in times where we're wondering if we have a good future. He, gave, he brought us the Holy Spirit to put in our hearts to, to give us hope for the future. Jesus came to give us spiritual blessings. And we can have joy in this life, even tastes of it, for eternal joy by realizing that Jesus entered a violent world willingly. Jesus entered a violent world willingly. 
There is no Savior like this who would come into our world and relate to us while violence was all around and, and danger was everywhere you could see. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why? And why would this Jesus, if it's really true, he comes into our world and does this, why would he do this? Why would Jesus prom promise light and joy even in the midst of violence that was going on in places like Judah and even the tastes of violence and tension we feel in our lives today? Well, our last three promises and fulfillment come in the grounds, the reason why God gives us peace and hope, uh, or rather joy in our text. In verses 4 and 5, and, and look at it, the, the, our promise is embedded in this four, a series of fours that show up in our text. Look at verse 4, you see the first four says, For the yoke of his burden, his staff, his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And then there's the next four in verse 5. Every, for every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's he talking about? What is he talking about here with this imagery? Well, he's talking about real change. Real change that takes place in freedom and in peace. In verse 4, he's talking about freedom. Freedom that comes by the fact that God comes and frees those who are bound up like slaves. And that's what the people of Judah were fearing, that they'd be bound up like slaves. And he promises he will free them from oppression of the taskmaster. He promises to break the burden for those who carry around the burden of the world, the burden of their own sin. He says, I will break the burden for you. And how will he do it? Well, the analogy is he does it as in the time of Midian. You know what that is? That's an allusion to uh, Judges chapter 7, where our friend Gideon, the judge, who was a very reluctant general of God's people, is called by God to gather a group of men, a whopping, you ready for this, 300 soldiers, to take on the Midian army, which was likely thousands and thousands of soldiers, in a, a battle for God's land and God's people. And what's interesting is God basically defeats the Midianites with Gideon and his tiny little band of ar uh, tiny little army without his army uh, casting a spear or, or shooting an arrow, without his army ever even uh, swinging a sword. He does it through making noise. They rout, God routs the Midianite army by ironic means. In other words, the lesson of Midian is this. God wins the battle, not us. God wins the battle, not us. Like the biggest thing you can experience, the biggest challenge in life that seems to defeat you, it's God who overcomes that, not us. It has to be someone fighting for us. And the implication of that is in that he frees us to actually live the way we're supposed to live. And that freedom, we believe as Christians, always begins in one place. It doesn't begin by political freedom or by economic freedom, though those are good things. It begins with freedom in the heart. Freedom in the heart. Jesus came as a redeemer to set us free, to buy us out of our slavery to sin. In fact, in John 8, Jesus says, everyone who comes to him is a, everyone who sins is actually a slave to sin. And then he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 
when facing darkness, when facing what feels like violence and you're bound up by that in your heart in fear, it's very important that you preach the gospel to yourself, that you speak the truth, that the battle is ultimately the Lord's. And remember that truth that Christ set us free in himself. This is key to developing hope in our hearts. We have to stop listening to the messages of our culture, which are doom and despair, and listen to what the Word of God says, which is hope. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. What does God's Word also promise in our text here? Well, if we're freed by the one who does battle for us, that means we can have peace, which shows up in verse 5 of our text real briefly. Christ brings peace starting again in our hearts. Peace that comes between us and him. Peace that even comes between each of us together. This all started on Christmas night. The Son of God left a heaven of utter peace, of utter righteousness, of utter glory and beauty and things working the way they're supposed to be to come into our very broken and violent world. You ever think about that? That Jesus intentionally chose to come, being sent by the Father, into a violent world like ours? Think about his world. The Romans were the ones who were ruling in uh, the uh, land of Judea and Galilee at that time, and the Romans were pretty oppressive with taxes, with anybody who tried to rise up and speak against them. You know, they didn't handle you uh, like Pontius Pilate, for example, didn't handle you with just, well, now you need to stop doing that. No, they'd kill you for rising up. But even worse, he came under the rule of King Herod the Great. King Herod, who when he heard, as we heard from Blair's reading earlier, of the coming Christ from the Magi, began to wring his hands. And when the Magi didn't return to him to tell him about the Christ as he had asked, what did he do? He sent out people to kill all the two-year-olds and under that were in the town of Bethlehem. King Herod was a violent man who wanted to hunt Jesus down. Jesus chose to enter a world where he would be hunted down. This is the kind of Christ we have. He enters into a world of relational brokenness and violence, and he comes to bring peace, reconciliation, love. And this is key. It is the opposite of what we would do. Who in this room would see violence coming and know it's going to happen and walk right into it? Were it not for war, that we all would run. We all would avoid. This is how our God, our Christ, is radically different than us and than all the gods of the universe in that he actually engages and walks into a violent world to bring his peace. You know, Islam... Its God goes like this. He is a distant God that you never engages in a personal way. You pray to him, you, you ask him to do things, but you never really know what he's thinking of you. You just try to perform so that somehow he won't come after you 
in some way. Our God is different. Our Christ is different. He personally engages us. He personally gives us presence by coming to our world to be with us. The result is we enjoy a Christ who is Emmanuel, God with us. No other God is like that in history. A God who is with us and stays with us 33 years. <laughs> Here's why that matters at Christmas for you and me. Whenever you feel some sense of tension in your relationships, at your job, you feel it in our culture, you watch the news and you get, mm, this is scary. Whenever you sense violence is going on in the world, Christ leans into that with you, with me. Christ moved towards it, not away from it, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He brings freedom. He brings peace. What will that freedom and peace look like? Well, verse 7 really summarizes what Jesus came to bring. It says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. In other words, Christ comes to bring, when he comes in our world, not just anything, but he comes to bring a government, a kingdom, where he rules. He is the master. He is the Lord. It, this is a kingdom that transcends human politics. It transcends uh, what we long for in our presidents, what we long for in our local government. It transcends all of this across uh, uh, boundaries of nations. And Jesus brings a kingdom that is the fulfillment of, of David's promise, or the promise given to David by God, that he would have someone on the throne of his kingdom forever. And this kingdom, it's built on justice. It's built on righteousness. That's the stuff you all want and I want when we see a world that is broken and not working the way it wants to. It's what we demand from our politicians. It's what we all long for when things are broken in our families. Justice and righteousness. Justice being the reconciliation and restoration of the way things should be. Righteousness being the right way that it can be done in God's way. Jesus came to bring this kind of reconciliation of disputes. He came to bring this kind of reconciliation of dark things. He comes to bring a rule that tames not just politics or material goods or economies, but to tame the last frontier of humanity, the human heart. Jesus came to do that with you and me. And we can have joy because he came to change us with the power of his government and his kingdom. We can have joy because these things are real. Freedom, peace, a government that will really last, one that transcends anything we experience in this nation or this world. But it all comes because of one, the one who shows up in verse 6. And this is what it says, to, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be in on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. You've heard this a million times, I'm sure. 
But you've got to remember, during the hundreds of years of political and cultural chaos of the people of Judah, whom, whom Isaiah said this to, they longed for one thing, and it's the one thing that we all long for in this coming election year, the leader who will get it right. The leader who will get it straight. The leader who will be the one that satisfies our souls. We are no different today. We long for that leader too. It's why we would demand so much and lionize our politicians. It's why after they disappoint us a few times, we demonize them. Because we keep finding out they're not enough and we aren't either. But there's one. There's one who came, who is everything that we long for. A son. A son who is fully God, fully man. Who gives us the very things that we long for as a people. He is the wonderful counselor. That's the language of one who teaches, who has understanding, who gets what we're about and what the world is supposed to be and carries out a rule with great wisdom. Remember Jesus speaking how the world is supposed to work. That if you want to be great, you've got to be the lowest servant of all. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. It's counterintuitive, but you know it's true. Second, he is mighty God, or heroic God is the language here. The one who comes through and is able to deliver us in every circumstance. How many gods do you know come through for you, granted in his time and place, but deliver? Remember Jesus taking on so many circumstances of people who were broken with their health, with the calming the storm, the power he exhibited by healing and loving people practically with needs. Third, we have everlasting Father, and we're not talking about here a biological Father. And by the way, for you theologian types, we're not even talking about that Jesus is the same as the Father of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity. Now he's talking the language of kingness in the ancient world. To be a father, it was to also uh, to be a king was often to be called a father. And this time, though, is everlasting. He's the one who sticks around even when all the others have gone. And I think of Jesus reaching out to broken women and men, Pharisees, tax collectors, uh, reaching out to prostitutes and loving them when all the others wandered away, when all the others wouldn't love them. Finally, there's the Prince of Peace, the one who brings relational restoration with God and with others. Jesus came to bring that reconciliation to us. And this is who we long for as a leader. In every case, this is what we long for in a leader. Christ came to satisfy the desires of our hearts and to save us from ourselves. And the amazing thing is he was born into this violent world to bring all of this for us, to bring himself to the situation. He was born in threatening circumstances and courageously stepped up against the likes of religious leaders who wanted him killed. He encountered dark violence of friends like Judas. Remember Judas? Who betrayed him? 
And Peter, who denied him? Jesus willingly endured all of this because of love for us, because of his grace, because of the larger picture of what he was about in saving us. And the result was all the promises of 700 years prior to Christ's coming were fulfilled in him. Isaiah 9 was fulfilled, and because of that, we can have hope. We can have hope that if Christ will walk into our violent world knowing what was coming his way, he will walk with us into any place, even the darkness that we carry around. That brings us hope. This God will go anywhere with us and will redeem us and rescue us in those circumstances. For those who are really exploring Christianity or not sure about it, I did want to say something today around this about Jesus being our ultimate hope. Scott Oliphant says it this way, very often we want Jesus to, to, be, more, uh, to be kind of that solitary figure who makes a difference. Everybody in our culture on some level thinks of Jesus as the one who made a difference, an amazing teacher, amazing impact, things like that. But I want you to know that Jesus is way more than that. What this text is talking about is Jesus is God in the flesh. The Word become flesh. That He is infinitely big. And that He is so infinitely big that when He died on the cross for our sin, it covered everything that we could bring to the table that was against the Lord. This is God's answer to the violence in our world today. Christ was born to die that we may live. Christ was born to die that we may live. What difference does that make? Well, it means for some of us, we can actually receive the grace of Jesus for the first time and know him by faith, by knowing that I don't have to fix myself. This Christ came in the world to be the ultimate leader to save me and redeem me, even die for me. We live on this side of Christ's coming he can free us when we trust Him by faith. And that's true whether you've been following, whether you follow Jesus for the first time or you've been following Him for decades. Faith is where we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior yet again. Second, a lot of us need to go to fearing the Lord and not being afraid of our circumstances. When we feel the brokenness of our culture, when we watch Fox News, when we look online at the fear-mongering that goes on in our time, even when the really scary things actually happen, we don't need to be afraid. It's not to say that we can't feel the fear. Fear is natural. But the question is, where do you go with it? That's the real question. The fear of the Lord is when you feel afraid of something, and then you go to the Lord with the fear and you seek his face in the midst of that. Finally, we, or thirdly, we wait on the Lord. We wait on the one who one day will return. And he will take our violent world and make all things new with a new creation. Where peace will be the norm of everything in our world. Finally, and this is for us as Christians. How do we respond to a violent world? Do we run away from it? Are we afraid of it? No, 
We bless it. That's right. We bless it. We actually lean in. Like Jesus leaned in with us. Like he died for us and we lean in and give of ourselves sacrificially to bless the world that is so broken. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor who lived in Germany during World War II. He spoke boldly against the Nazi regime and was eventually captured by the Nazis for participating in a plot to kill Hitler. You may have seen the movie Valkyrie. Well, Bonhoeffer was implicated in that uh, situation. Bonhoeffer sat in a concentration camp awaiting his eventual execution for this. And he said this, this is what we do in the world that inflicts suffering on us. And I'd finish with this quote. We do not abandon the world. We do not repudiate it. We do not despise it or condemn it. Instead, we call it back to God. We lay our hands on it and say, may God bless God's blessing come upon you and renew you. Unquote. This is grace. Grace is what we give a world. And it was spoken by a man who is about to be executed by one of the most wicked regimes in, in recent memory. The only way you and I can do something like that is to have that same grace reach into us personally by coming to dwell among us. This is the grace that came to us because a child was born to us. A child was given to us. Enjoy that grace and let it change your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray.